my favorite subject in school was always history. But I do know that there are many people who don't find history very interesting. And I understand that because to them, history is just memorizing a lot of dates, information that just seems completely irrelevant because they don't see how learning about the past can possibly help them in the present. But those who think like this have really missed an important truth about history. They've missed the truth that history is important because we can learn from the mistakes that others have made in the past. Why? So that we don't repeat those same mistakes, either in the present or in the future. So history is important. In fact, it was the well-known Harvard professor, George Santana, who wrote these now famous words, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Others have said it, but he was apparently the first one who put it like that. Now, learning from history not only is important when we think of past secular history, but it's also important of past biblical history, past biblical events. And that's exactly how the Apostle Paul understood and viewed biblical history himself. And we know that because of what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. So if you have your Bibles or tablets, why don't you open there? And here's what the Apostle wrote. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of, of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Now, as you can see, the Apostle Paul begins this chapter, chapter 10, by reminding us of the past history of the nation of Israel during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness before finally entering the promised land, the land of Canaan. And Paul highlights a number of God-given blessings and privileges that every single Jewish person had during that period of time as they exited Egypt under the leadership of Moses. But notice what Paul says in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased and they were laid low in the wilderness. In other words, in spite of their many blessings, in spite of their many privileges, they sinned and God judged them for their sin by taking the lives of most of them. That's what it means they were laid low. They were, they were killed by God. 
And then Paul states why this part of Israel's past history is so important for the Corinthians, as well as for us and every Christian, to understand, to know about. Notice what he says in verse 6. Now these things, these things he's writing about, these things as he's delving into the past of Israel, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. In other words, Paul wants us to learn from the past mistakes made by those Israelites so that we now don't repeat them. So the question then is this, why? Why is Paul writing about this now in his letter to the Corinthians? Where did this come from? Why does Paul even bring up this part of Israel's history in chapter 10 of his letter to the Corinthians? And and how are the mistakes made by these Israelites so many years ago relevant for us today or relevant even for the Corinthians back 2,000 years ago? So we want to think this thing through. To begin with, I want to remind you where we are in our study of 1 Corinthians because I understand it has been a while since we studied this letter. But as you might recall, starting with chapter 8, Paul has been addressing the issue of what's commonly known as liberty issues. Sometimes they're known as gray issues, but let's call them liberty issues, meaning that these issues are neither commanded nor forbidden in scripture so that God has has left it up to us individually to choose if we want to participate in any practice that falls under this category of a liberty issue. And the specific liberty issue that the Corinthian church was struggling with, and it was a struggle to them, was the question of whether or not it was right for a Christian who had been saved out of idolatry to eat food that had been sacrificed to an idol. Some of the Corinthians, as you know, they felt strongly that they should not eat such food because in their minds to do this was to backslide. It was to fall back into their old way of idol worship. And Paul refers to these Christians as weak. He doesn't necessarily mean they're immature. They're weak in the sense that their conscience was weak in that their conscience would not allow them to eat this food. But some of the Corinthians felt just the opposite. They believed that since idols were nothing but false gods, not true in any way, merely the imagination of sinful humans, that there was nothing wrong in eating food that had been sacrificed to an idol, since an idol is nothing. These Christians are referred to as strong because their conscience was strong in that it wasn't bothered by eating this type of food. And so in tackling this issue, the first thing Paul does is he devotes what we refer to as chapter 8 to teaching the Corinthians that while those who are strong are certainly free to engage in eating food sacrificed to an idol, they shouldn't do it in the presence of their weaker brethren who would be offended and who would stumble spiritually by such behavior. And the primary lesson, and note this, the primary lesson of chapter 8, if you strip everything else away, it's this. Out of love, out of love for our brethren, we are to limit the use of our liberty for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Out of love for them, though we may feel strong and we may feel like our conscience is fine in doing something, out of love for for them, we don't do it if it would cause them to stumble and be offended. And then, having laid down this as a general principle... 
Paul moves on to chapter 9 where he illustrated this principle of limiting the use of one's liberty out of love by, note this, using himself as an example, as one who, though he had the right to be financially paid by the Corinthians for his ministry to them, he had every right to be paid by them for ministering to them, he gave up that right out of love and concern for others who might mistakenly think that he was greedy and covetous and was just in the ministry to make money. And then Paul ended chapter 9 by explaining how he chose to forfeit not just that right, giving up his right to be financially remunerated, but he moves on to something else. He forfeited the right to live, to eat, and to dress the way he wanted to by making himself, he says, a slave to all men. So he tells us that when he was with Jewish people, he lived like a Jewish person, as someone who was under the Mosaic law with all of its dietary restrictions and rules. He dressed like someone who we would say would be an Orthodox Jew, an observant Jew, ate all the food, observed all the the rules, though he knew that he didn't need to do this, but he did this. He made himself a slave to Jewish people, and when he was with Gentile people, he tells us he lived like a Gentile, being free to eat and dress the way Gentiles did. That's how Paul fit in in their culture. And when he was with weak, unenlightened people, he lived as they did. And folks, his purpose, he explains in giving up these rights to, his rights to live, to eat, and to dress as he pleased, was to win these unsaved Jewish, Gentile, and weak people to Christ so that in sharing the gospel with them, they could relate to him. They wouldn't be turned off by how different he was from them and the way he lived, ate, or, or dressed. In other words, he wanted them to think of him as one of them. And so they would be more receptive when he began to share Christ with them. Back in September, I had the opportunity to preach at the Brooklyn Tabernacle, which was very special for me because I was raised in Brooklyn, New York until I was about age 15. And I wanted the congregation to think of me as one of them. And so I began my message by telling them something only people from Brooklyn would fully understand and appreciate. I told them that the day before, which was Saturday, that Saturday I was able to show Michelle, take her around the city. They had a driver for us and I showed her where I played punch ball, stick ball, stoop ball, and played in the Flappish Little League. I even mentioned my team and where I played. And I knew exactly what I was doing because as soon as I did this, I knew that I had their attention. I knew they accepted me as one of them who had come home. In fact, I know this was the case because when I was leaving the church, one dear lady said to me, she said, you may live in Florida, but you talk Brooklyn. Now, I really don't know what she meant by that exactly, but I know it was a compliment And I took it as that. I know that she and others felt that they could relate to me. I was one of them. And that's exactly why Paul lived like whatever group he was with at the time. So that they could relate to him. They would be more attentive to him when he shared the gospel because they looked at him as one of them. And how did Paul do all of this? How did he manage to live such a self-sacrificing life of giving up his rights? I mean, to 
eat the way he wanted to eat, to dress the way he wanted to dress, to do certain things. Well, he tells us how at the end of verse 27. He said, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul says that he disciplined himself so that he made his body his slave. Meaning what? Meaning that he learned to curb his own desires. He learned to withhold from himself certain appetites, certain indulgences, because if he gave in to those desires, he would stop being useful to God in the area of evangelizing Jews, Gentiles, the weak. That's what Paul's referring to in verse 27 when he writes about being disqualified. This is not a reference to disqualification in the sense of losing your salvation. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. Paul didn't mean that. But it's being disqualified as if from a foot race, a race that you're in, so that his lack of discipline would no longer make him useful to God in leading people to Christ. He would be disqualified from usefulness because he didn't discipline himself. Now listen closely. Having just closed chapter 9 by speaking about his own discipline to maintain his usefulness and his fellowship with the Lord, Paul now moves on to chapter 10 where he speaks of the failures of the Israelites to remain disciplined during their wilderness wanderings. And as a result, they fell into all kinds of sins. So the connection then between the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10 is this. He wants the Corinthians and us to see how dangerous liberty issues can be because if we fail to discipline ourselves like the Israelites did, even in an area of our liberty, it will lead to falling into sin. You see, while any liberty issue in and of itself, it's not dangerous. In and of itself, it's not dangerous. It's not even wrong. The danger lies in thinking that we can handle this liberty issue without any problem. And if that's our attitude, then I can assure you, you will fall into sin just like the Jewish people did. See, folks, what Paul is addressing here is the attitude of overconfidence and pride that the strong Corinthians had in handling the issue of eating food sacrificed to an idol. Because they felt that they were invincible, they were strong, they could handle eating food sacrificed to an idol, and he is writing to them to warn them about putting too much confidence in themselves to handle this. And that is precisely why he writes in verse 12, this is where it all fits together. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Let him who thinks he's standing and can handle eating food sacrificed to an idol, and it's not going to lead to anything beyond that, take heed, because you'll fall if you think that you can handle it. You see, the strong Corinthians thought they could easily deal with, with eating food sacrificed to an idol without indulging in idolatry, without taking it a step further and falling into idolatry. But their overconfidence in themselves left them vulnerable to falling into idolatry. And that is what happened. And this was a problem for the Corinthians and especially for them because as a congregation, they were an extremely proud people. 
They had this pride. Paul's written about this throughout his letter. The Corinthians were a proud people. Writing about the Corinthians' pride and therefore the danger they faced with being overconfident in handling their liberty issues, John MacArthur wrote this. He said, they were saved, baptized, well-taught, lacking in no gift, and presumably mature. They thought they were strong enough to freely associate with pagans in their ceremonies and social activities and not be affected morally or spiritually as long as they did not participate in outright immorality. Paul tells them they were deceived. Abusing their liberty not only harmed weaker believers whose consciences were offended, but also endangered their own spiritual lives. They could not live long on the far edge of freedom without falling into temptation and then into sin. The mature, loving Christian does not try to stretch his liberty to the extreme to see how close to evil he can come without being harmed. Folks, that's exactly why the Apostle Paul goes back and writes about the history of the Jewish people during their wilderness wanderings because he's illustrating just how easy it is for them for the Corinthians to fall into sin because that's exactly what what happened to the Jewish people in spite of their many blessings and many privileges. So, going back now into the history of Israel, Paul teaches several truths about the danger of being overconfident in, in approaching any liberty issue. First truth being this, though greatly privileged, the Israelites did fall into sin. Though greatly privileged, the Israelites did fall into sin. Verses 1 and 2. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now Paul begins by using the word for, which connects what he is about to say to what he has just said concerning his own discipline that kept him from being disqualified from usefulness to the Lord. So this is simply an extension of what he's already written. And it's in light of their need, the Corinthians' need, to exercise that same type of discipline in their own lives that he wants them to be aware of a time in Israel's past when almost all the Jewish people failed to exercise discipline over themselves and it led to their downfall. The time, as I've already mentioned, the time he's referring to is the time following their exodus from the land of Egypt which did last 40 years until finally they entered the land of Canaan. Now, even though most of the Corinthians were Gentiles, they were not Jews. I suppose there were some Jewish people there, but most of them were Gentiles. Paul still refers to them, notice this, as their fathers. He refers to the Israelites as their fathers in the sense that they were their spiritual ancestors as the people of God. And he says that they were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, this is a reference to when Israel initially departed from Egypt. The statement they were all under the cloud is about God's supernatural guidance, his direction of the people, when by his Shekinah glory, in the form of a cloud, he gave them daily direction as to where he would have them go. Well, we read about this in Exodus 13, 21. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And then the statement about all pass through the sea, it speaks of God parting 
the Red Sea so that the entire nation could walk through on dry ground as we read in Exodus 14 verses 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and their left. Now that's how the Jewish people the Israelites walked out of Egypt. They were guided by this cloud above them and they were able to cross the Red Sea on dry ground. And then Paul states that all the people were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And what the apostle means by this, it has nothing to do with what we normally think of when we think or speak of baptism, namely water baptism. He's not talking about that at all. Paul is using baptism in the sense of identification, um, solidarity, uh, union. So just as our water baptism is an outward symbol of our identification and our union and solidarity with Christ, so Israel was identified with Moses as their God-appointed leader. They were united with Moses. There was a solidarity with him in the sense that they were one with him as God's unique people under his unique leadership. As Paul continues to tell us about Israel's time following Moses in the wilderness, he tells us more about how privileged these people actually were. Verses 3 and 4. He says, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now here Paul refers to how God sustained, physically sustained, the Jewish people in the wilderness. He says that God provided spiritual food and spiritual drink. And by spiritual, note this, he doesn't mean that the food and the water were not literal. He doesn't mean that they weren't physical, but rather that they had a spiritual source. That's what he means. In other words, it had a divine origin. God from heaven gave them this food, gave them this, this water miraculously, and that's how they managed to survive all of those years, 40 years. Now, this miraculous food was known as manna. Any of you who have read the Old Testament, you should. It was called manna, which literally means, what is it? What is it? Kind of like what your kids say when you put food in front of them. What is that? Well, that's what the Jewish people are. What is this? But it was some type of heavenly bread that God provided, some, some wafer-type bread that God provided for the Israelites during these 40 years until it stopped when they entered the promised land. And that's how they managed to eat all of those years. Likewise, we read the Lord provided water for them from a rock, which is a reference to what we read in Exodus 17 Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you, God says, there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people that the people may drink. But notice that Paul adds some explanation to this rock. He says that the rock followed them, and the rock was Christ. So what does he mean by this? Well, I can tell you he doesn't mean that Christ was a literal rock. 
That's not what he means at all. No more than when Jesus said, I am the door, was he saying that he was a literal door, a wooden door. Or when he said, I am the way, he didn't mean I'm a literal highway. Not at all. Paul simply means that Christ being God existed in the Old Testament before his incarnation. And that he's the one who continually followed the Jewish people around and provided them with water. Wherever they traveled, the Lord was with them. And he provided water for them. Perhaps from this rock and then from that rock and then this other rock. And he did that for 40 years. They never saw him, but he was there. It was Christ, their Messiah, providing for them. Now, folks, the point, and you want to get the point that Paul has been making about the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings is that they were a blessed people, a privileged people. God kept supernaturally, miraculously providing for them during this 40-year period of time. And what then was the Israelites' response to all of these divine blessings? Well, that's verse 5. Nevertheless, With most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. This is an obvious, note this, understatement by Paul. Because when Paul says most of them, he means all of them except two individuals. See, this is a reference to the fact that out of all the Jewish people who left Egypt, only two men over 20 years of age actually entered the promised land. Who were they? Joshua and Caleb. The rest, we read, they died. 20 years and over, they died. And how many people are we talking about? Not a small number. According to the book of Numbers, about 600,000 men departed from Egypt. So if you add to this number, women and then children, the number most likely was close to 2 million Individuals and only two of them, at least 20 and over, entered Canaan. The rest, Paul says, were laid low in the wilderness, which literally means they were spread out. They were spread out. In other words, wherever the Israelites traveled during those years, God judged them by taking their lives and spreading their dead corpuses over the wilderness. As someone I read put it, he said, funerals were the order of the day. And why did God do this? Why did he take the lives of so many people? Because of their many sins. You see, the point that the apostle is making here is that though these Israelites were all blessed by God, all privileged, yet they took their blessings for granted and they fell into sin because they did not discipline their fleshly desires and their fleshly appetites. Here's the way one Bible teacher explained what happened and and the point that Paul is making in light of the Corinthians' fondness for engaging in liberty issues. He writes this, All Israel have been graciously blessed, liberated, baptized, and sustained by the Lord in the wilderness. But in that race, that test of obedience and service, most of them were disqualified. They misused and abused their freedom and their blessings. In self-centeredness and self-will, they tried to live on the edge of their liberty, and they fell into temptation and then into sin. Overconfidence was their undoing. I think he's exactly right. Now, I want you to notice this last line that I just quoted, 
this last line by this Bible teacher, that's the key to understanding the primary truth that Paul is making. Overconfidence was their undoing. Thinking that they could handle matters, they failed to discipline their fleshly appetites, and so they failed the various temptations that they faced, and consequently they fell into sin. That's the main point that the apostle is making in these verses, and that, that's exactly what the apostle wants the Corinthians to avoid. That's why he's writing about the Israelites. He's giving them a history lesson from ancient Israel because he wants them to learn from the past mistakes of the Jewish people, which is why he says what he says in verse 6. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. With this statement, Paul declares why it is just so important for us to read and to know our Old Testament. I hope that you don't neglect the Old Testament because when we read about the sins and the failures of Old Testament characters, they do serve as examples for us to learn from them so that we don't make the same mistakes. And I think one glaring example, one obvious example is David. You study the life of David and his fall into adultery with Bathsheba, and there are definite steps that led to David's fall. You study that and you go, you know what? I want to learn from this. I don't want to follow in those steps. And you can do that with almost any Bible character who fell into sin. You learn from their failures. That's exactly what Paul is doing now in reminding the Corinthians about how the wandering Israelites sinned and were judged by God so that they fell in the wilderness. And why did they sin? Well, notice the last few words of verse 6. They craved evil things. Paul says that even though they were so blessed, so privileged by God, I mean, imagine God providing manna every morning and then water gushing out of a rock in the wilderness whenever they needed it, yet they did not discipline their fleshly lusts so that when they were tempted, they did not say no to their temptation, even though God was so very real in their midst, providing for them. Instead, they set their hearts on the things that they were tempted to indulge in. Now listen closely. In the next few verses, which Lord willing we'll look at next week, Paul is going to mention some of the very specific ways that the Israelites sinned. Areas in which they refused to control their bodily desires. But what I want you to see tonight is the main truth that Paul is teaching in these verses, and I want to apply it. The truth is this, if you fail to get your body under control, you will inevitably fall into sin. And as a result, you will be disqualified from effectively serving the Lord. Simply put, this means that it's only those Christians who refuse to indulge their flesh whom God uses. Others who give into their flesh, though saved, just aren't particularly useful to the Lord. And the Corinthians were very much in danger of falling into this, of failing to discipline their fleshly desires and therefore falling into sin. Why? Because they were taking their liberty too lightly. They were thinking that they could handle anything because they were strong in the Lord, never thinking that by participating in a liberty issue, they would encounter temptation that they were not able to handle. 
So let me give you some examples of liberty issues that in and of themselves may not be sinful, but they definitely can lead to sin. I'm thinking about couples who are not married, let's say a boyfriend and a girlfriend, who enjoy kissing each other. Now the Bible doesn't forbid a boyfriend and a girlfriend from kissing, nor does it command that they kiss. So then this would fall under the category known as a liberty issue. But while kissing isn't a sin, everyone knows, everyone knows that it can very easily lead to going too far and then falling into sexual immorality. In fact, sadly, that has happened to far too many Christians, all because they thought they could handle their liberty of kissing someone they were attracted to and then just stop there. But they couldn't. They couldn't. And because they failed to discipline their fleshly desires, they did commit what the Bible calls fornication. Same thing could be said for hanging out in certain places where evil and lewd stuff is going on. Though it may be your liberty to hang there, before you know it, you may very well fall because you're now involved in the same evil that others have been involved in. And yet you may say, but it's my liberty. The Bible doesn't say I can't go there. You're right. But he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. I know of a mother who used to warn her daughter against going to dances, and I don't want to be legalistic about this, but this mother warned her daughter against going to dances simply because she was afraid that the kind of dancing that was going on and the atmosphere where the dancing was taking place could lead her daughter to fall sexually. Now, Does scripture forbid dancing? No, it doesn't. It doesn't forbid dancing. However, if one cannot handle the sensual movements of some dances, then they could very easily fall into sin. Folks, this is the kind of thing that Paul is warning us against. Taking these liberty issues too lightly so that we don't guard ourselves from falling into sin. See, many of the Corinthians thought they could handle eating food sacrificed to an idol, but they couldn't. Consequently, after hanging out and eating at the temple of an idol, they often gave in and they joined in the worship of that idol. Likewise, sexual immorality in Corinth was tied to the worship of idols so that many of these same so-called strong Christians who thought that they could handle their liberty simply could not, and so they gave in to temptation of sexual immorality. Folks, what Paul is telling us is that while we love our liberty in Christ, we have to be careful with our liberty in Christ. Because if we're not careful, and by careful Paul means disciplining our bodily desires, they will lead to sinning against God. See, you do not take yourself up to the edge to see how far you can go. You take heed that you're not as strong as you think you are. Next week, we're going to look further into these issues. But tonight, you just need to think about anything that now, these days, you might be involved in, that while not technically a sin, it brings you so close to the edge of sinning that you're in danger of going past the edge and then falling into sin. Maybe it is the issue of kissing your boyfriend or girlfriend. Maybe it's going to some place known for its evil 
behavior. Maybe it's doing some practice where you know that you're being tempted to take it a step further and give in to your flesh. If that's the case, then do as Paul told Timothy. Flee youthful lust. Don't try to think it through. Don't try to rationalize it. Don't try to analyze it. Run from it. Don't see how close you can get without sinning because with that attitude, I assure you, you will sin. You will sin. So I say with the Apostle Paul, let he who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Now, if you are not a Christian, if you are not a believer in Christ, then the only liberty that you need to know about is the liberty that Christ offers you in salvation. He will, if you turn to him, if you repent of your sin and trust him, he'll set you free from your sins. Jesus said, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Right now, you may not realize it, but you are a slave, a prisoner to your sin. But if you repent, turn from your sin, turn to Christ, trust him, he will save you, you'll be forgiven, you will be set free. Let's pray. Father, such important verses in your word, so easy to overlook, so easy to think that liberty issues, we're free to do whatever we want without any consideration, but there are considerations, and I pray that you'll, you'll help all of us to take heed to ourselves, to make sure that we're not, we're not living in such a way that uh, we're abusing our liberty by taking it right up to the edge, thinking we can handle things when we cannot. So Lord, I've only given a sample examples here, but I pray that you would apply by the Holy Spirit to each of our lives things that we need to be careful about. And above all else, Lord, help us to discipline ourselves, to discipline our bodily desires and appetites so that we are in submission to you and that we are useful to you. So I pray also, Lord, for any who might not be a believer, any who might not be saved, either here in person or watching live stream, draw them to yourself that they might realize that they are a slave to their sin and that only Christ can set them free. We pray all of this in his precious name. Amen.